welcome to the Three Priests Walk in a Bar podcast. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, We are on our third episode, so we're really starting to get this thing off the ground. Um, If you were with us uh, for the last uh, installment, then you remember we said that this particular episode was going to be something a little special because we have taken it upon ourselves to record a live event, a live Three Priests Walk in a Bar event. Uh, If you remember from episode one, that's how this whole thing started. Um, fathers Nick, Lou, and Adam got together over just kind of talking about church theology and church tradition, invited other people to kind of listen in on their conversation, and the event was born. That is still kind of the core of what this whole movement idea, I don't even know what to call it, uh, is about. And so we still try to host those live events uh, as often as we can. It's getting a little more difficult with everybody's schedules. That's why we have the podcast, uh, but we still like to have those live events to get people out and together as a community. So um, this is that event. So if you weren't able to make it out, you can still be a part of it. It is just as lively. It is just as um, informal, honestly, as our podcast recording, though maybe a little more structured because even these guys uh, know how to behave themselves to an extent when they're in public. So uh, without further ado, let's get to it. So... I'm using a mic, but there's no amplification. It's just to, it's just for recording purposes over there in my little my little corner of the world. I stick my face in there, and that's why I'm so pale. Um, this is also why I'm not a stand-up comedian. Um, so, welcome to the first live podcast recording of Three Priests Walk in a Bar. Um, it's great to see uh, all the familiar faces coming back and some new faces. Uh, is anyone here for for the first time? All right, we got we got a couple of stragglers. I'm sorry you found your way in here. Um, <laughs> you really don't know what you got yourself into. Um, as a reminder to our to our priest, please keep the mic about this far from your mouth. Don't hold it down here. Don't hold it out here. We're not Catholics. We don't do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, don't bury it in your beard either. I don't have that problem. Uh, before we get started, um, Nick has asked me if I would introduce Kate um, because she has. Are you, she is the is the manager owner owner of Ashen Coffee and Tea here? Who? Okay, that's it. She has so graciously opens uh, the establishment up to us to have this event. So uh, please, uh, th- can we thank her, please? And she's just going to say a couple of things. Just keep it. Okay. All right. It's an absolute pleasure and no thanks is necessary. I thank you for all being here. We just love having you. Um, uh, Father Nick, let let me come forward to talk to you today just because we want to make sure that you're aware. We have a project at Ashland Coffee and Tea called the 365 Project. We are working on collecting 365 sponsors for 365 children in Central Virginia who are in foster care in the next 365 days. So far, we have collected 30 sponsors in the last 30 days. So we're really very pleased with that. 
And part of what we're doing with that is also hosting a Christmas dinner here. It is a free community dinner. We wanna make sure all of you know, so if you know of any families in need, people who are, might be alone at Christmas and they don't have someone to spend Christmas with, my husband and I come in here and we cook Christmas dinner and we're here from, um, well, we start opening the doors at five. We're here much earlier. <laughs> um, but from five to eight, we uh, have Christmas. We have a musician who has signed up to come. Uh, we have somebody who has signed up to play the jolly uh, guy in the red suit. Um, hopefully he will still be able to do that. And we give Christmas gifts to the children we've been collecting for. So these children are in foster care or in other hard places, have been through some trauma. And one of the things that we try to do is to make sure we're granting their wishes, not just that we go out and collect a bunch of toys and they can come and get a toy. Um, these kids don't have a lot of choices in their lives. And so we try to make this Christmas a chance for them to make a choice on what they want. Um, we are very lucky to have a relationship with the people at Comfort and Beer Bingo. They are working with us to collect all the wishes for these kids. And so far, I think we only have about 15 kids left on our list. We just got some new kids. So we've got 15 more kids left on our list to um, collect their Christmas wishes for. But the most important part is we are here on Christmas and we want people to know our doors are open. It's a free dinner. If you know anyone in need, we ask you to please let them know about us and um, let them know that the doors are open for them, okay? All right, so <clears throat> we are going to get started. Uh, hopefully this will not turn into an all-out brawl because the last time we discussed violence in the Christian life and it really turned into a heated discussion. I was, I was surprised by the irony. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. Um, okay, so tonight's topic um, was given to me in a very lengthy memo so I'm going to try to condense it down. Um, it's just, can we Christians of different denominations worship together? Um, we all claim and proclaim the same Lord, and we come together at events like this to talk about the things that unite us and the things that divide us. Um, so that's what we want to talk a little bit more about tonight. Can we as Christians worship together? Not just can we worship the same God, but can we worship together in community? And so we're going to go, we're going to start with Father Nick with the Anglican Episcopal tradition, move to Father Adam of the Orthodox tradition, and Father Lou of the Lutheran tradition. So without further ado, Father Nick. All right. <clears throat> well, uh, let's uh, let's actually um, start with uh, with a quick prayer. So, um, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, you have brought us together on this evening to fellowship together, to listen to one another, and to seek in our own way to live out your own high priestly prayer that you prayed with your disciples in the upper room on the night before you were betrayed, that they all may be one. We thank you for bringing us together, and we raise up our conversation 
to your glory and the glory of your name. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, we all just prayed together. I think that uh, answers our question. Oh, Father Adam has his arms crossed. He does not want us to all be one. He thinks Jesus got that one wrong. Uh, Anyway. So uh, obviously Christians pray together all the time. Uh, The real question is, what are the limitations, what are the boundaries of our our common prayer? Uh, When can we worship together? How can we worship together? Uh, And uh, what I want to say, and this shouldn't be too different, I think, from uh, what Pastor Lou will have to say, is uh, I want to kind of call back to what the Apostle says in his epistles, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, We were all baptized, and in so being baptized, we were drawn into the body of Christ, made very members of his body, I I believe that uh, the Lutheran tradition, the Episcopal tradition, and the Orthodox tradition all have this high view of baptism that it's not just for us. It's not just an outward sign of our uh, confessional um, allegiance. It's not just, I want to join this church, and this is the rite that I go through to join the church, but that baptism is... uh, is an act of regeneration by the grace of God. So that for Lutherans, for Episcopalians, and I imagine, oh, I've got to hold this up higher. Uh, and I imagine also for the Orthodox, uh, baptism is, uh, if, if someone were to come to us and say, are you born again? For us, the answer is yes at our baptism. Baptism is regenerational in that way because we take St. Paul's words seriously in Romans chapter 6 that all who have been baptized have died with Christ. They've been joined with Christ in a death like his and so they have the hope of being raised in a resurrection like his that is raised in and through and with him because we are very members of his body through our baptism. This means that for every Christian, for every Christian who has been baptized, we are mystically bound to one another, bound by that same Holy Spirit that is the third person of the triune God, bound together into the body, the actual incarnate body of Christ. And our identity is an identity that Christ gives to us in our baptism. Namely, he shares his own sonship is the way that St. Paul says this in Galatians and in Romans. That Christ extends his sonship to us. This is often translated in the New Revised Standard Version as uh, the spirit of adoption. But the actual language of the Greek is the spirit of sonship. That is, Christ as the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and all that belongs to him as 
the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is extended to us so that we become, as St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, co-heirs with Christ. And we too can be called children of God. This is precisely why and how we can say together, our Father who art in heaven. We can only boldly proclaim God to be our Father in any real sense and not a metaphorical sense because we have Christ's very own sonship given to us. We are children of God in and through and with Christ because he has given that as a gift, as grace to us. And so uh, I belabor this point about the importance of baptism because I think, and the Episcopal and Anglican tradition has affirmed, that this is the most important identity of a Christian, the baptismal identity. And that all Christians who have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit now share this identity and can pray together and can worship together. That is why in an Episcopal church, if you have been baptized and you come, say you come to Fort Church uh, because you just, you love what I say and you, you can't get enough of my preaching. And so you're like, I need a 20-minute sermon from this guy every Sunday. And you, so you come to Fort Church And it comes time for communion. If you have been baptized, it doesn't matter what your tradition is, what your denominational affiliation, we will accept you at the altar rail and you will receive the body and blood of Christ. Baptism is the only requirement for that because baptism is our true identity as Christians, all Christians. That's our true identity. Now, I will say one last thing to just kind of wrap this up, uh, and that is uh, we understand in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition that there are differences between the denominations. And these are sometimes confessional differences and sometimes polity differences and sometimes, uh, you know, other differences that are less important than our shared baptismal identity. And we recognize that if we're going to enter into full communion with another denomination, what we need to do is set up some, some uh, parameters for that. And what I mean by full communion is uh, have a clergy person from that other denomination come into an Episcopal church and be able to preach and preside over the Eucharist, or have me go into that other denomination's church and preach and preside over their Eucharist. And uh, in the 19th century, the uh, Episcopal Church and the Church of England followed it, and so it's become normative for the whole Anglican communion, came up with four requirements. They're known as the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. This is the less interesting part, I know, but I'm just going to go through it real quick. To go into full communion uh, between the denominations, if we're to enter into a full communion agreement with another denomination, 
uh, that denomination has to, we say, affirm that the Old and New Testaments contain all things necessary for salvation. Uh, they have to affirm that the creeds, and particularly the Nicene Creed, is the symbol of faith, and therefore uh, is affirmed by all members of the church. Uh, they have to affirm at least the two dominical sacraments, the two sacraments instituted by Christ himself, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. And they have to uh, maintain or be willing to enter back into uh, the historic episcopate within the apostolic succession. And so, uh, in fact, the Episcopal Church is in full communion with Pastor Lou's church, the ELCA, or Lu Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, uh, because we agreed on all of these things. They were deficient in one way. <laughs> they, they had not maintained the historic episcopate and apostolic succession, and that was something we had to work out between us. And uh, in fact, there were some Lutherans, I believe it was the Finnish Lutherans, who had maintained apostolic succession. And so we were able to kind of bring them back into the historic episcopate in that way. Episcopate just means having to do with bishops, right? So this is bishops, again, an apostolic tradition. An apostolic tradition is that the teaching of the apostles and the laying on of hands from all the way back to when Jesus laid hands on the 12 apostles and they laid hands on their successors and they laid hands on their successors all the way down to the present time has been maintained. It's been maintained in the Anglican tradition, the Episcopal Church, uh, and we brought the ELCA back into that so that we could be in full communion. So that I have preached and presided at an ELCA church in fact, when I do supply work, which I haven't done in a long time, but I used to do, uh, I noticed that the ELCA churches, the Lutheran churches, paid better than the Episcopal churches. <laughs> so I always wanted to go there. We're more generous. <laughs> that's, that's true. They are more generous. They have a better sense of grace, and so they extend that. Uh, but also, uh, if Pastor Lou ever wanted to uh, come and preach or preside at the Fort Church, uh, I could allow him to do that uh, within that full communion that we have between the Episcopal Church and the ELCA. There's one other church that we have that with in, in the Episcopal Church, and that's the Moravian Church. But those are the only ones that we're in full communion with at this time. But again, I want to go back to and end here that worshiping together, praying together is something we can do with any Christian based on that baptismal identity. Now, maybe the presiding and the preaching, that's a different thing. But just praying together and worshiping together is based on that common baptismal identity that we all share in Christ. Now I'm going to ask Father Adam to come up and just throw a monkey wrench in all of this. <laughs> which all of you know I'm very good at doing. Can we pray together? Uh, yes. Uh, quite so. Can we worship together? Well, isn't that an interesting question? I like that Father Nick prophetically brought up the idea of identity. This is uh, a very pregnant week uh, 
I have 11 children, so anytime I use the word pregnant, people get a little scared. <laughs> this is a very pregnant week of, of, of so much going on. This is the week leading up to uh, the feast of our Lord's Nativity. And I think it's the same in, in, in the uh, Episcopal and Lutheran traditions, but I could be wrong. But in our lectionary, the reading appointed for the Sunday before Christmas, before the Nativity of Christ, is always the first chapter of the first gospel, which is Matthew 1 through blah, 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 uh, where we read about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm an expert at pronouncing every one of those names. So-and-so begot so-and-so. And when you can't figure it out, it's always so-and-so. Uh, and you say so-and-so so much that they, that they don't know you're just saying so-and-so. They think you're saying something in Hebrew. I've become quite good at, 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 at pronouncing all those names. But we go through all these 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations, establishing the human lineage of Jesus Christ. These things were important, and show me by a show, quick, of hand, quick showing of hands, how many of you have or are continuing to be involved with Ancestry.com or, or 23andMe or anything like that? I think probably more hands than not will go up. We have the interwebs. We can search these things. We have the Mormons who gave us Ancestry.com, and they're really good at figuring out our lineage. It's interesting. Let's face it. We do like to know where we come from. This is a very young country. Identity is comprised of so many things. Our interests, our, 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 our uh, family connections, our, our, uh, our church affiliations even. Our identity is founded on so many things. But be, because of the advent of, of science and of the interwebs, we have the ability to go dig down deep. And if you're willing to pay extra, you can even get the UK records and go back even farther. So far, I have not decided to pay for that. And I haven't found anything that I didn't know. <laughs> we kept good records anyway as a family. But this is something that we find important. In a time, in a place, in an area fixed on linear time where we are, we find that it's increasingly more difficult to lay hold of our identity. And it's increasingly more important to us to be able to reach out, especially as we get older, I think. It becomes less fluid, and we become a little bit more fixed, and we want concrete answers. Our heart is seeking, our life is seeking concrete answers as to what exactly is our identity. And so I love when we come upon this, this, this week before Christmas, this Sunday before Christmas, and we get to this reading from First Matthew about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It actually seems rather dull if you look at just, okay, there's so many just crazy names, Semitic names that we've just mentioned there. Why did Matthew bother? My goodness. He, he just burned out like a whole chapter and a half of, of, uh, of names. And wow, that wasn't very interesting, Matthew. We're not off to a good start. I don't know if I'm going to continue reading this thing. Why is identity important? And I can't help but notice, especially after the last couple of years reading that, I mean, how many years have, have I been standing there as a priest preaching on this gospel about identity? And it has very much to do with what, what our identity is and what's really important. And I'm glad that Father Nick brought up identity 
so that I could criticize his words about, I'm just kidding, so that we could actually make that, at least my jumping off point, it's identity. And he's right. Our identity, the only one that matters, and shucks, I just gave away my, my homily for Sunday. I have some of my congregation here, so they're going to have to either hear it again or going to have to come up with some new material. But our identity, the only one that matters, is Jesus Christ. I could walk away from that statement, and I could have said enough. But our identity, the only one on this earth and into eternity, before us and after us, the only one that makes any sense, the only one that has any import eternally is Jesus Christ, who became man so that we could become God, who sees himself in us that we may see ourselves in him. That we who were baptized and three times into the waters of baptism have spent three days in the tomb with him so that when he rose, we too could rise, a new creation. This, on one level, on, on a strong level, I'm going to reluctantly agree with Father Nick, is the cornerstone of our worship. It is the identity that we understand that is ours in Jesus Christ. If we do not identify as Christ then we have no business approaching the body of Christ. We have no business approaching the chalice to commune of the body as the body. The cornerstone of that identity is our baptism. And then we have to go to the second, I don't know if it's the second part of the question, the second half. Can we worship together? Can we enter in to communion together. Because yes, we all agree. Especially those of us who have been baptized, dunked three times or sprinkled three times, we accept that too. Nobody ever said the Orthodox weren't slightly progressive. <laughs> we'll accept a sprinkle. It's, we, oh, we dunk. We get you wet. We'll do it three times. This is who we are, is the people who have put on Christ. As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, if we are Christ through our baptism, clearly then that makes us qualified somehow to approach the dread mysteries of the Lord of glory, to approach the chalice where we are invited to eat his body. The very real presence. Man down. <laughs> to become by grace what he is by nature. How is it then that if you take a random sampling out of anybody in this room, because thankfully we are all from a bunch of different places. Rock, paper, scissors. Not all of us can commune together, can we? You get some Lutherans and Episcopalians together, then yes, you can. But then you throw some Baptists in the mix, and then all of a sudden, maybe we can't. Or at least their priests can't, can't celebrate uh, at the altar together. There are limitations to that communion, aren't there? Or Catholics, my goodness, let's not leave out the Catholics. I'm sorry, guys, I know you're over there. <laughs> Shout out to my Catholic friends. I was raised Roman Catholic myself, uh, and, and so I have a strong affinity for my Catholic friends. 
can we worship together? Can we enter into that very sacred and unrepeatable union with Christ through his body, through the holy mysteries. And when I say communion, I don't just mean the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, but also all of the holy mysteries, the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of ordination even, the sacrament of marriage, all of the other seven sacraments, confirmation or chrismation as we call it. They're really all one and the same. We recognize them differently because of what they look like, but they really are one and the same. Can we worship together? And the answer is yes and no. I love all of you. I know most of you. But if Noah came into my church tomorrow, I couldn't commune him. Because to commune together witnesses to a common union that does no longer exist. To approach the dread mysteries of Christ is what every human soul desires. We are made in his image and made to acquire his likeness. And it is our heart's desire to be united with Christ through the sacred mystery. So I would not be able to commune my brother in Christ Noah, who I am so fond of. I couldn't take Addison to the chalice and offer her communion, no matter how much I care for her. I couldn't even take my sister Ginny who is studying for the priesthood in the Lutheran confession, I could not welcome her to the chalice. And that is not an exclusionary thing. It is actually a hopeful thing. It might require a little bit more time at the mic, but I'm not going to go deep into that one because I'm getting the, 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 the stink eye from Father Nick that I'm rolling over Father Lou's time, which I'll gladly do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I could not welcome my brother Billy to the chalice at this point in man's time on earth. We do confess the same Christ. We do confess one baptism. But we also exist in a time and in a place where the church is no longer one. Now, most Orthodox people would say, that the church is one and everybody else went away. We can unpack that another time. However, practically speaking, even among Father Nick and Father Lou, we can't commune at the chalice together. We commune at the, at the, the, the pint glass plenty, but we cannot commune at the chalice together because of full communion means that there is a common union that identifies us as fully in Christ in the same way. And from an Orthodox perspective, that union no longer exists. We are united in baptism. This is a consolation. This is something that brings great comfort. But we are not united fully. But we hope to be. It is our hope that even if our death precedes the church reuniting, that one day in heaven, because everybody's Orthodox when they go to heaven, um, <laughs> that one day we will commune at the altar together in eternity. But such as it is, the church is not one at this time. The church, the, the Christians are not united 
and therefore are not able to approach the chalice, to approach the mercy seat in the same way. So yes, my brothers and sisters, we can pray together, but we can't worship together, not yet, but we hope to very soon. I'm just seeing how long I have to stand here till Father Lou grabs the mic out of my hand. <laughs> I yield to my brother, Father Lou. Oh my, what a bummer you are. <laughs> no, it, we're, we all have fun. We all have fun here. Um, I'm not as prepared as Father Nick ever. And uh, Father Adam, he's in his own little world. So I, I make a few notes. Um, I, I did, I did uh, I'm very proud to wear my hat tonight. It's a new birthday present. And I thought I'd be uh, channeling Father Nick. And, and, and two of these hats are not like the other. <laughs> I do want to point that out. Um, I have a cool on mine. Yeah, you have a cool button on yours. That's true. Um, one of the things when we're talking about this type of subject, that, uh, and we've and it's coming up on a podcast that's going to drop on Christmas Eve, I think, is the one we talked about it. But uh, you know, the word ecumenism means something different for Father Adam than for us. Uh, he shudders when I say ecumenical. <laughs> Uh, I felt I felt like kind of watching the uh, spam a lot. You ever see that movie? And there's the knights that say knee, and and so in our case, we're, we're the pastors or priests that say say e <laughs> for ecumenism, um, and that's really what we're kind of talking about. What is the church? How do we relate to one another? Where can we worship together? And I agree. Uh, and don't let this go to your head, Father Nick. I agree with Father Nick that that uh, you know that that really we've already done that as far as our prayer together. There, it, it, so it comes down to kind of what. What, what does worship mean? And, and there are boundaries or whatever that we, that we tend to make, depending on what denomination we are. Uh, and some, I've, I've heard some people, some Christians say they're not a denomination. I don't buy that totally because I think you, we are divided. Unfortunately, that's a sad truth. Um, we don't agree on everything. That's a sad truth. Um, and so there's limitations and boundaries for, to, to quote our friend uh, Calvin, for good order. Um, and, and to try to have some uh, proper um, respect and veneration and whatnot. Uh, and so we have made arbitrary rules that are not necessarily um, can be traced directly to Scripture. Uh, some people can try. There's certain parts of it that we could, I suppose. Um, so what do we mean by worship? I think um, a lot of times when we get down to it, we're really talking about sharing at the Lord's uh, table, Lord's Supper. That, that tends to be the big uh, boundary that we run into. What do we mean by the Lord's Supper? What do we mean uh, by whatever term you like to use for it, uh, Eucharist, uh, communion, whatever. But because communion is part of it and uh, Eucharist means unity, communion. So, so like, you know, there's an element of uh, that's what it's supposed to represent and also be a reality with us joining us with the entire church, not just those that we're gathering with. There's some good arguments about that. Um, but I think within uh, one of the things that pa uh, Father Adam has, uh, I gotta start calling you Pastor Adam just to annoy you, just like you call me Father Lou. Uh, Pastor Adam was saying the other day, um, you know that uh, <laughs> that there's an element of um, um, that that uh, we tend to in uh, Episcopal, Lutheran, 
uh, churches to offer some kind of open communion in the sense of if you're a baptized communion Christian, you could come to the table. Um, that is true, but not with all Lutherans. I think we need to continue to remind folks that uh, there's a there's a, uh, breakages within the Lutheran church. Uh, there's breaks within the Anglican community and break-offs from the Anglican community. And despite what Father Adam says, there's, there's, there's problems in the Orthodox land too. Um, there, there, if, uh, look at Ukraine. Um, uh, yeah, look up, look up Ukraine. That's what you need to do. Um, um, but there's variations in high and low church, even within, uh, the, uh, Richmond area. Uh, there's variations in, um, the way we do things, uh, and worship together. But, uh, even in the, even in the clothing that we wear, um, you know, that some churches will wear chasubles and some will not and whatever in the Lutheran tradition. And it's not, um, really scriptural. You know, there's nothing in, in, uh, the scriptures that say thou shall. And so traditionally in Lutheran, um, the way the Lutherans have handled things is that if it's not prohibited in scripture, you can do it. Um, and, 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 hey, I'm just telling you the truth. You know, because, you know, if it's not prohibited, right? Yeah, a lot of people are celebrating right here uh, if you're not able to see this at home. Um, but, but the thing is that, that that came up with music, for example, because uh, there was a while when the Reformation first happened that a lot of Calvinists were saying, well, you know, there was no organ in the Bible, so we better not use any organ, right? I mean, and, and because they were trying to get back to Scripture. And so, and, and so Luther was kind of like, well, we need to chill out a little bit on that, which is unusual for Luther because he was not a very chill guy. Um, <laughs> But, but, um, but variations in music. And so today you do see, um, in, in the ELCA anyway, you do see something that's happened since, particularly after World War II, where people got tired of Christians killing other Christians and started to say, well, how can we be one together uh, and be an open to change and dialogue and whatever? There was, a, there was changes that happened uh, in Episcopal Church, Methodist Church, Lutheran Church, Presbyterian Church, uh, Orthodox Church. They say they never changed, so I'm not going to include them. But... Yeah, <laughs> but but the, the the thing is that we do have um, different uh, means and methods of worship that have adopted and integrated and reformed and transformed back to old ways and and sharing of new ways and new understandings of worship, um, and and so we have uh, we have we have been open to change for the sake of communion. Uh, there was a time after World War II when a lot of people would talk about the E word in hopes that, uh, that there would be maybe one church together in polity and practice. And um, about the 1980s or so, when the ELCA came to being, there was an understanding that that may not happen in our lifetime, and so why not try to live as closely together as we can? And so there was a change in attitude towards, let's, let's try to live this out. And, and part of it is uh, John 23rd, the Pope John 23rd, saying, uh, you know, that we should try to live, uh, uh, what, what does, what, what do you say, focus on our, uh, what brings us together rather than what separates us, I think he said. Um, Father Nick's going, I don't know. Um, yeah, but, but I think that's the, it's a rough quote. But, well, you, he doesn't care what the Pope says, people at home. Um, um, but, but the thing is that there was a change in attitude of openness, and, there, and it did affect um, how people celebrated Ash Wednesday, Lent, different things. Um, and, and from that, there was also the full communion agree agreements that Father Nick mentioned, uh, that uh, in, in our denomination, we have six different full communion agreements, and it does allow 
Lutheran pastors or those pastors from other traditions to serve in our congregation and vice versa. A lot of wonderful things come, can, can come out of that, uh, including sharing at the table. Uh, that is not the case for all Lutheran traditions. Again, there's a confessional wing of the Lutheranism that if you don't agree with the confessions that, that you're not in full unity with, the, with our understanding of things. And so Missouri Synod, Wisconsin, Evangelical Lutheran Synod and others um, you're not going to be uh, most likely able to commune. And that became an issue in such places as um, uh, as in uh, Sandy Hook, you know, when there was the shootings up in Sandy Hook Elementary School and, and there was a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod pastor, went to a communal prayer service to respect the dead and it was interfaith and he he just shared a a prayer from his Lutheran Christian understanding and he was disciplined for that. He was uh, castigated for that. He was he was just insulted for that, and it became a kind of a scandal within that church denomination because, uh, of course, people thought, well, you know, what's what's he doing wrong? And but the Missouri Synod was being stricter on what, you know, in general they say no altar fellowship, but they were ex- defining that in a very broad way, and and so so all of a sudden he couldn't even really uh, interact with other traditions. That's not always been the case with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. That's, that seems to be more from the 1980s on as they went through some of their own transitions um, and splits. Uh, but that's a sad reality. Um, and, and w- but when you think of it, to be fair to those folks, uh, is it really that different from, say, the Orthodox Church, which Father Adam just said that, well, if we're not in full communion, Maybe we shouldn't be together. Or the Catholic Church. If you go to Catholic Church within the Missal, there's going to be a, 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 a an invitation to commune as long as you're in certain uh, full communion agreements with the Catholic Church. And if you're not, you can't commune. And so there is an element of uh, uh, separation through all of it. It's based on baptism, for shared understanding of baptism, but also uh, the way we understand the Eucharist. Uh, and who believes in the real presence. And even within the ELCA, you're going to come to different churches where the welcome to the communion that might be in the bulletin will be a little different. It might say those that are communing, um, baptized communing members of a Christian church may commune. Or it might say those that are baptized communion church, uh, members of a church that uh, believe that it's the real presence. Um, you can have variations within the Lutheran. There's disagreements and, and discussions about that. So... There's no perfect uh, example of unity. Uh, the historic episcopate, apostolic succession, uh, even with that, with that full communion agreement, there was some that on theological grounds, uh, and we won't get into the weeds there, but that felt that, uh, you know, it's a Lutheran tradition, important distinction for the priesthood of all believers that we should not focus that only a priest can come from the laying on of hands from a bishop. And so there was an accommodation made, not uh, with uh, the full approval of everyone in the Episcopal Church, where if someone really had a matter of conscience, they could, they could have someone else ordain them uh, into the church as a, as a pastor. Uh, in general, though, the bishops are ordained by an, uh, with an Episcopal bishop present, and, and then, the, then they uh, uh, will ordain those that are now going through the process. And so... The bishop that ordained me was it was a bishop that was had a Episcopal bishop present, and therefore, theoretically speaking, it, it, it has a laying out of hands going back to apostolic times. I'm valid now. Father Nick, Father Nick gave me his seal of approval, so we're good for Sunday. Um, 
But uh, so, so a lot of times things get really technical. Um, but when you put those things aside, I think one of the things is to be uh, open and creative to what the church is, uh, to have a, a wider understanding of what the church is, can allow you some fluidity to new relationship. Um, one of the things that was a blessing in Mechanicsville when I was a pastor there was to have uh, All Souls Episcopal join us. They were in need of a place to worship. Uh, we had done some vacation Bible school together. When their pastor, their their um, mission pastor left, they were kind of feeling a little bit rudderless and and uh, they said, can we worship on your space on Saturdays once a month just to kind of get the feel of it being in a real church building again? And we said, yes. And because you're our brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll let you come for free. You know, we're not going to charge you uh, and we're going to welcome you as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then after that, someone said to me at a meeting, hey, um, you know, we really are thankful that you allowed us to do this. Uh, we love it there, and, and it struck me, and maybe it was the Holy Spirit, uh, maybe not. But I said, well, if you like it that much, maybe we should talk about you being here every Sunday. And we had conversations about that, and so we went through all that and, and found our way, and they ended up worshiping there. And it's been since about 2013 they've been worshiping there two different congregations sharing the same building, but over that time period, sharing more and more ministry together, sharing, sharing worship at different times of the year. And then when they recently had someone called to be their next pastor that was only, at a, uh, was only a deacon at the time, could not preside a communion, they were able to uh, ask me to preside. And so I had the pleasure of presiding at the Episcopal worship for the month of August, waiting for that person to get ordained. And that was a real special opportunity for me, but also a, a real chance for new intimacy and understanding what, what it means to be church together. Another thing is to be very um, uh, creative. Uh, in uh, you know, the Lord's Supper is a particularly important subject. Uh, but when I was working in France and Tizay, uh, one of the things we did that was not my idea, it was long before I came, is that uh, uh, the Catholic uh, priest often presided on Sunday worship. Uh, a lot of other believers were there, Quaker, Evangelical, Orthodox, and others, Catholic. And, um, and so um, they had Anglican um, communion uh, that was on, on the side, on one side was offered. Uh, blessed bread for the Reformed on the other side, and then those that would like to have the Catholic communion were in the center. Um, I don't know if this is 100% true, but I was told that the uh, the Pope, Pope John Paul II, had uh, given a dispensation for the Tizay community brothers to distribute communion regardless of their tradition. Uh, that's an interesting thing. I'll have to ask them next time I see them, but uh, but there is no, there was no ID checks at the door. There was no, you know, you could come and commune as you wanted. Um, and even for an accommodation for the Orthodox that were there, and there were many, many Orthodox. I was there after the wall had come down and many people from the East were coming. And uh, the the French uh, brothers, and, and now they're international, they had built, a, with the help of the Orthodox Church, a, a chapel for the Orthodox so they could participate fully in their communion. Uh, and then, uh, and, and I know when the, and I won't say the name of the person or anything like that because I don't want him to get in trouble, but there was an Orthodox priest that invited me to commune. Shh, don't tell anyone. Um, but, but, but he was in a, he was in a Eastern Bloc country. The, the country was decimated by communism and he was there for some reflection 
and he was teaching us about the Orthodox faith, and he just felt called to be with us as one, and he and uh, then went back to his country to start a monastery there. Um, and so there's a lot of variations in creativity that possibly could be. Uh, I think there needs to be some flexibility. And just as one final example before we open up to everyone else is, uh, we, we call it the filio K, right? Uh, oh, filio no way. Filio no way for, for, for the Orthodox, but the... the um, where, where in the Nicene Creed, where it talks about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father uh, without any, um, with the, the, the addition in the West of uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son has been resisted by the Orthodox. Uh, it was not really done in con consultation with the Orthodox. It wasn't really as a result of that. And so at least in the ELCA, one of the documents through discussion with the Orthodox to try to promote unity is if we are doing any kind of worship experience with them and desire to do and share in the Nicene Creed, we are allowed to omit uh, the, the phrase from the Son. And, and, that, that's, and so I think... All things are possible, not just with God, but with us, if we have the open heart and mind to do so. Doesn't mean we have to cast all our beliefs aside. Doesn't mean we have to be disrespectful to the traditions that go before us. Want to not just go with the wind all over the place. But I do think that we can make some accommodations to be one people, one church together. And I guess I'll end it there for right now. What are we going to do now? Back to, back to Nick number two. All right. Whether it's for me or, or Father um, Adam or Pastor Lou or for Nick. Yeah. Uh, don't ask me questions, but <laughs> I didn't go to seminary, y'all. Um, but uh, two, two things before we get to the questions. Actually, we were talking about this earlier, me and um, Lou, Adam, and Nick. My sister, who uh, took a few years of, of Latin in high school, says it's pronounced Philly Oak. So now we know, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Did I see that? All right. So I. Well, you're Greek and you're English, so... But I would, as, as an Italian, I'm also questioning Father Nick Forte's pronunciation of his last name. <laughs> I think a good Italian would call himself Forty. <laughs> Forty, with that, with, yeah. Um, second thing is... I think we're all missing the uh, the, the the real point of the uh, of the communion. And I grew up uh, I grew up uh, charismatic with a fundamentalist Baptist education. So when I first got to have wine at communion, that was that was a great that was a great moment. It was at it was at um, my Catholic cousin's wedding. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to take communion at the time. I just went up and had some and said it was great. It was really warm on the way down. So that was pretty much it. Okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. I could stick it under a microscope and there it would be. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so now we have come to our uh, regular time of Q&A. Um, if, if you have a question, please don't make it a homily like Father Nick. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, let's open the floor. Who, um, don't leave me hanging, y'all. So everybody, everybody's completely understood everything. I always like to try and pass the mic to, to Father Richard over there, who always hides in anonymity, but I out him almost every time. So I would like for, for Father Richard, to, uh, who is our, our resident uh, non-ELCA Lutheran, 
Oh, oh, I thought I forgive me, Father. I thought I thought you were for, were uh, Missouri Synod. I I was. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the discussion about Lutherans not being the same—it's uh, really true because uh, when uh, uh, it was brought up about uh, the the difficulty with. Uh, praying for, with a group of ecumenical Christians or pastors, uh, Missouri Synod is against that. Uh, in fact, it's one of their their uh, core core pieces of doctrine that Christians cannot pray together if they are not equally yoked together. And for that reason, they will discipline any of their pastors who. Uh, participate in uh, ecumenical prayer services. Uh, I left the Missouri Synod in about 1979, and one of the reasons I did leave is because I had served in hospital chaplaincy, and I really became uh, appreciative of the fact that there were many, many genuine, wonderful Christians beyond the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And uh, I ended up uh, eventually in the LCA and now ELCA. But the fact that we can, as Christians, pray together, talk together, cherish each other's positions together, I think is a great gift. We don't have to agree on everything, but if we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we need to realize we are already sisters and brothers. And we need to live that out in our own everyday lives. If we fail to do that, we're not giving a complete witness. We're not really telling the world, which is not necessarily, in fact, I'm sure, not very easily connected with Christianity anymore. <clears throat> We're not letting the world know that in Christ Jesus, we are one. Now, the differences we can deal with, and we can be respectful about dealing with those. But when we <clears throat> face the world around us, we need to let the, know, the world know that in Christ Jesus, we are a community of the faithful, and we will support each other uh, very strongly, no matter what. I, uh, uh, during these past couple of years, I've really been kind of, <clears throat> in my own mind and heart, suffering along with the Coptic Christians, which have suffered so drastic persecution in Egypt, for example, and some of the Christian churches other in other places of the world. They, they need our prayers, and they need to hear that we are with them and uh, taking their suffering into our hearts and minds and lives. And I think that's what our fellowship is all about. We are actually one in Christ Jesus, and we need to live that out. I need cue cards. Uh, okay, so we have a question right here. So I'm going to get the mic around to you. So your question for everybody or just one in particular? I think, I think it's for everyone, but maybe more aimed along Father Adam. Um, just, just to take it to a next, another level of detail, um, the, the business of communion is, it confuses me a little bit, so I'll, I'll ask a really simple question. Um, 
if I were to go to, let's say, a wedding or a funeral in a church, um, would I be allowed to take communion at that wedding or funeral if the church was, um, well, I'm Episcopal, um, um, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, um, uh, Armenian Orthodox, would I be allowed to do that? Because I have been at Catholic funerals where I was not allowed to do that. Now, this was several years ago. Maybe that's changed. But just so that I understand the degree to which uh, this occurs today, would I, as a practicing Episcopalian, be allowed to take communion at these other churches that I mentioned? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, it, it's a multifaceted answer to your question. Um, Father Nick says, I can't give you multifacets. So, oh, he wants me to back up. I've lost weight, but not enough, clearly, to, to fit into the wide angle of his camera. In, in a nutshell, the answer is no. However, you will find, especially within Roman Catholic circles, that there will be times where the priest will say, please, yes, you can. Now, I don't speak for Roman Catholics, and I don't speak for all Roman Catholics, but I have heard anecdotally many, many instances where there will be places where, yes, especially for whatever reason, given that it's a funeral or perhaps a wedding, uh, any instance where you wouldn't normally be there, where the priest has made an exception. Um, I don't know how to interact with that situation. I just, I get, that's an anecdote. Officially, no. From the Roman Catholic perspective, I would say officially, no. Uh, knowing what I, I, I was raised as an Irish, uh, died in the wool Irish Catholic. Uh, so no, the official stance of the Roman Catholic Church, no. Um, from the Orthodox perspective, no, that would not be extended. We typically do not do a liturgy anyway at a funeral or even a wedding. There's not usually uh, uh, the body of Christ. There's the, the Eucharist is not usually present for that. It's a separate uh, uh, experience altogether. We don't have funeral masses usually. Can you mention the bread that you do hand out to other Christians? Oh, yeah. In the Orthodox tradition, uh, be, without going into too much detail given our, our time constraints, in the Orthodox tradition when the, the Eucharist is prepared... Uh, for the regular divine liturgy, it's taken from either a large loaf in the Greek and, and uh, Arab tradition or in the Russian tradition out of five small loaves. Uh, and the bread that remains behind uh, is, is cut up and distributed to the faithful uh, in the Russian tradition after communion, in the Greek tradition after the dismissal at the end of the service. Uh, and that is not the Eucharist. It's just, we call it blessed bread uh, or zapivka, where people will take wine and bread just to, uh, to cleanse the palate and to wash down any uh, unconsumed or unswallowed parts of the body and blood of Christ. That's something completely different, and everybody is welcome to that, even if you were... It's a parting gift, even to those who are visiting. Uh, some Orthodox would say it's only for people who have communed. Whatever. We offer it to whomever is a visitor. It's, it's just blessed bread. But if you were to come to an Orthodox... Um, <laughs> Wedding, and I extend that to the Copts and the Armenians and the uh, what we would call uh, Oriental Orthodox. Um, finally, I fit into the frame. Uh, <laughs> you can't contain me. Um, 
The real answer is no, but it's a pregnant no. I like to use the word pregnant. Um, if you were to show up for something where we had, I mean, like you're, you're describing a situation where you wouldn't normally be there, but you're there for a family event. And in an Orthodox perspective, we don't usually have a divine liturgy connected to those. They're separate. Even a baptism is typically not accompanied by a divine liturgy. So you would not typically encounter that opportunity to make that mistake <laughs> uh, in, in an Orthodox perspective. In a Roman Catholic situation or, or what have you, you would. Um, so there are times when we'll do a divine liturgy prior to a funeral. It, it's not often, but it happens. Um, in which case the answer would be, you know, the same rules apply. Uh, there, you know, the, regrettably, we can't, but it's a gesture of hope that we don't. It's not a gesture of exclusion. It's a gesture of hope that ut unum sind, that all may be one. Yeah, Father Lou is being Catholic for a second. Uh, yeah, I'm going to put on my Catholic hat. One second here. Um, yeah, when I was uh, when I was getting married, I, I had converted to Lutheranism by then, and uh, we wanted to have communion. We could have communion as part of our wedding service, and it was important for my wife and I to have that, to offer that, and to... It was up in Pittsburgh, and the and the pastor said, you know, he, he didn't want us to feel disappointed at our wedding, that there was disunity on display. So he said, look, if you're having a lot of Catholics here, don't expect a lot of people to come up. Are you sure you want to offer communion? And we said, yes, despite the risk, we will we would want to have that, and we'll just go with, with what we have. But I did do a little research on it because of I knew that question was going to come up. Um, and and um, although it is true that canon law states that they should not offer communion to others that are not in communion with the church. Um, the, there is those that, uh, at least at that point, were disagreeing with that or at least is suggesting a change, saying and, and, and quoting a document, not a canon law, not anything that was a, official per se approved, but that the unity of the family was more important than the disunity of the church. So it was a pastoral decision. And so uh, the, the bishops would be allowed permission to make that adjustment um, under their polity, under their uh, governance. Uh, you know, for some people in my family, all they had to hear is the word about the unity of the family. And they were ready to go to communion. And when some people went to the communion, then just about everyone in the church went to communion. Uh, because that's something that people can relate to. And I think, you know, I'm not Jesus, but I have, a, I have a strong feeling that Jesus would agree with that the unity needs to be emphasized sometimes rather than religious law and the separation and proper teaching and things like that. Nick, did you want to comment on any of that? Uh, so the first thing I want to say is uh, you heard it from his very own lips. He is not Jesus. <laughs> Nick always confuses me. <laughs> uh, I keep telling him no. Right. Despite the hat. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, but in fact, uh, Father Adam said uh, that he was uh, originally raised uh, and was at one time Roman Catholic. And of course, that's true for all three of us, right? I mean, we, we were, uh, in fact, the first podcast, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, is all about us talking about why we're not Catholic, Roman Catholic anymore. Uh, so uh, go listen to that if you want to hear that story. Uh, I believe, and uh, 
Father Adam, Pastor Lou, correct me if I'm wrong about this, if you know that I'm wrong. If not, then I'll just pretend like I'm right. Uh, but I believe that at the Second Vatican Council, the Roman Catholic Church did uh, come to say that if a Roman Catholic uh, is in a place, in a situation where they cannot get to their own church, to a Roman Catholic church for a Roman Catholic mass on a Sunday, which is, uh, every Sunday is uh, a, a holy day of obligation. You have to go and receive communion. Then they can receive it at another church. So if there's an Episcopal church in town, but there's no Roman Catholic church and there's no way they can get to a Roman Catholic church, they can go and receive at the Episcopal church or whatever. Uh, Similarly, uh, if, uh, you know, me or, or uh, well, Father Adam wouldn't, but uh, me or Pastor Lou were somehow in a situation where we could not get to our own churches uh, to receive communion and all, the only option available for us was a Roman Catholic church. I'm pretty sure there's Vatican II documents that say that in that circumstance, we can go to the Catholic Church and receive communion. So there, there's a, a, just a smidgen of this acceptance by the Roman Catholic Church that, uh, that in fact we are all one in our baptism. And in fact, um, according to the Roman Catholic Church, at any time, Father Adam is an Orthodox uh, Christian can receive communion. It's just according to his church, he can't receive communion from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and he would not give the Roman Catholics communion. So, you know, everybody uh, gets dissed by somebody else, I guess. I used to go to, um, I think it was Holy Apostles in Virginia Beach, which was a joint Catholic and Episcopal church. Um, are there any other examples of that going on now? This is for any. This is for any of you, you know, and for any denomination, center denomination. Right. So, can you make sure that's trained on me? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the so Holy Apostles is still there in Virginia Beach. It is a joint Roman Catholic and uh, Episcopal parish. Um, it started off in this beautiful kind of way where they had both of the altars, from what I'm told, right next to each other and one altar cloth and the two priests con-celebrating. Yeah, right. Uh, and now what it is, is the two altars are on different sides of the room and uh, the, there's a Episcopal Eucharist that happens at one time and then a Roman Catholic Mass that happens at another time. So they're really basically two separate congregations using the same space. And that, and, you know, it reflected uh, a period of experimentation uh, right after Vatican II and with Bishop Sullivan as the bishop of uh, the Diocese of Richmond, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Richmond, that's since been, you know, kind of retracted, yeah. I, other than Teze, I, I don't know of any others, but there may be, yeah. An example that I forgot to mention, or, you know, I wasn't allowed to because Father Lou was about to pummel me for the microphone. Often, 
over the last several years, I will go after my uh, Christmas Eve services are completed. And I will drive to Fork Church in Doswell, which is Father Nick's church. And I'll duck in the back and I'll sit in the back. And, you know, I'll bring a pillow so that I can sleep through Father Nick's homily. And <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll duck in for his, um, for his uh, what do you call it, his, his Christmas Eve mass. Father Nick has a beautiful choir, uh, a rather talented choir, and uh, they're really good at what they do. And it, uh, it's a nice Christmas Eve thing to hear beautiful Christmas music. Uh, in, in the Western tradition, which you know certainly is something that I, I don't forget in, in leaving the Roman Catholic Church. I don't forget beautiful Christmas music. It's dear to many of us. And not just for the music, but to go and, and, and to be able to greet my brother uh, and tell him, you know, Christ is born, let us glorify him. Uh, to go and, and to even, you know, obviously I cannot commune with him and we, we, we wouldn't do that at this point. But where I can, I can embrace him uh, and tell him, you know, Christ is born, Merry Christmas, I love you. Um, and if either of us happens to have, you know, bourbon with us, maybe we'll say Christ is born together. <laughs> but uh, this is something I try to do. It doesn't happen every year because, you know, at the end of my Christmas uh, Eve services, I'm ready for, for to go to sleep and prepare for the Divine Liturgy the next so morning. <laughs> I hitch up the, the three three horses to my troika and I, I go through everywhere and I go visiting for the Father Nicholas and if he was close enough to Father Lou I would go to him too um, we would go and say Merry Christmas Christ is one Christos um, uh, so there, certainly this is not um, <clears throat> that word uh, but it is uh, greeting my, my, my some of my best and most beloved friends and telling them Christ is born and, and being able to share just a little bit of that. Uh, we're, we're keeping that, uh, that, that evening sacred. Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a witness, again, I think, to hope. Not, not to exclusion, but to hope. Um, which is to say that I'll try to make it this, uh, this year too. But if I don't come, you'll have to wait for next year. <laughs> so now we all know that he likes Father Nick better than me. <laughs> I forgive you. Being a good Christian, I forgive Pastor Adam. <laughs> all right. I think I looked it up real quick. I think it's uh, canon law, because I'm, I'm sure you're all going to read this at home, 844, canon 844 in the Vatican Church uh, addresses this. And there, there is wiggle room for, for use. But I think what often happens, it depends on who you talk to, who interprets the law, just like in the United States with uh, what whether a certain someone, we will not speak his name here, gets impeached or not, right? We all de debate the law, right? We, we all got different, we're all saying, well, I can point to this and I can point to that. It's the same thing in the Catholic Church with canon law. It's the same thing in the Episcopal, Lutheran, and I dare say Orthodox Church, uh, that there's people that disagree about law and, and practice. And uh, apparently there is some wiggle room for allowing for other folks to take it out of necessity or whatever, but there's caveats to it. And in general, pretty much they make a big... Um, um, announcement at the Catholic proceedings that if you're not in full communion with the church, you should not receive uh, because they say, well, if it's some kind of need, great need or, or need for grace, then you can do it. But then who determines how much need you need that grace? It becomes, uh, uh, you know, how, how much is too much? How little is too little? We need all grace. We need all grace. Yes, indeed. Uh, what other questions do we have or comments? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Where? Where at? The Holy Spirit is at work. All right. He said that I said that at 844 at 844. Yes. All right. Let's hear it. By the way, guys, this is date night for me, so. <laughs> Hello. So I'll try to be loud and also not blare out the microphone so you can hear me. But I, this question, I've had this question since like the first five minutes. So I'm going to try to bring everything back. But I'm wondering, I thought I heard someone say, it might have been Pastor um, Nick, but can, why can't believers who haven't been baptized yet pray with another believer who has been baptized? Or I guess maybe the difference is in, maybe the difference comes with baptism. I don't know if that's the different beliefs about baptism that are happening, but can somebody speak to that? No, I'll, I'll be happy to start, and I'm sure the others will have something to add in. Uh, all right, so um, it's, it's not that uh, baptism is a requirement for praying together. And because, in fact, uh, as someone's a catechumen, uh, preparing for baptism, obviously they're coming to the church, they're praying with everybody. Uh, the, the, um, the issue is receiving communion. And communion uh, in the Episcopal Church, uh, the canons of the church and the rubrics of the prayer book say that uh, you must be baptized before you can receive communion. Uh, this is an ancient tradition of the church. Um, it, uh, okay, I got to hold this up closer. This is an ancient tradition of the church. It is something that's being debated within the Episcopal Church currently right now. Uh, and um, I, because there are some who believe that uh, our call to the virtue of hospitality by Christ uh, should mean that we should welcome anybody, whether they've been baptized or not, uh, to the altar to receive communion, but uh, it has been, I think, uh, going back to the New Testament church, the position of the church that baptism is a requirement for receiving communion. Uh, if you look at what St. Paul says, he says, every time you eat the bread and you drink from the chalice, you proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. And there's the only way that you can enter into that mystery. And he really, I, I believe that St. Paul really believed, just as, as I do and, and Father Adam does, and I suspect Pastor Lou does, that, the, that when you receive the consecrated bread and wine, you are receiving the body and blood of Christ, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. You're really receiving Christ. Christ is really present in that. And the only way that you can enter into that mystery is if you, I mean, it, you, how can you proclaim his death until he comes again unless you have been united with him in his death through baptism, which is what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6. So, uh, so baptism and Eucharist are of a piece. And in a sense, it's what Father Adam said, which is that there's really uh, one sacrament, the Ur sacrament, which is Jesus Christ himself. 
And these are ways that Christ gives himself to us. And so baptism is a requirement for receiving communion, but not for praying together. I could pray with anybody for that matter. I mean, you know, if somebody's a, a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever, if they come to me and they say, will you pray for me? I'm going to pray for them. And if they say, will you pray with me? I'll say, well, this is the way that I pray. It begins, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to join with me in that, we'll pray together. A lot of the questions about communion, although we can't go into the deepest ages of the church and, and, and necessarily know with 100% certainty what the debates were and everything like that. Uh, in, in general, there is evidence, at least within the Western church, that there were local communities that would not allow folks that were going through the catechumenate process to receive communion. They would be dismissed at the time of communion. Actually, it was at the term of what Paul calls the kiss of peace, you know how like a lot, of, a lot of modern people today hate shaking hands at church, right? Oh, there's a few people going, oh, yeah, 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 no. Um, uh, that is actually an ancient Christian practice that is scriptural. And it's not just as supposed to be saying, howdy, trip. How you doing, man? Good to see you Sunday. Or welcome, new member. Welcome, new visitor. It is, it is a chance to bless someone, to, to ask, you know, the, the Lord's peace be with you. Christ's peace be with you. You're blessing somebody. And there was a, there was a time period when, that there is evidence, at least in some Christian communities, early Christian communities, that is when the catechumens would be dismissed. The kiss of peace, which Mediterraneans, peoples, they like to kiss, right? Right? The kiss of peace, the sign of welcome, was before communion because those that are about to receive communion should be in unity, not disunity. And that's why it's a good practice to particularly go to those that you have disagreements with and say, The peace of Christ be with you. Let's put all that baggage behind us. We're here to gather as one body with Jesus. And, it, and, and I think if, if, if pastors taught that better, that whole handshaking experience would be would be better, uh, um, but I, I think there's a lot of different variations in the way we do things, and uh, I'm not sure we'll get ever all on the same page. Father Adam's liturgy that he uses actually. Father Adam's liturgy that he usually that he uses. Uh, I assume it's in both liturgies that you make use of, right? Actually, has a place where you say it's time for catechumens to depart catechumens depart, right? He stands regally. <laughs> we still use that. Uh, all catechumens depart, depart catechumens. Let all who are catechumens depart. Let no catechumen remain. we got to get a shepherd's crook. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Pull that guy off stage. Um, it is no longer the practice where, uh, in the Orthodox uh, Divine Liturgy where, where the catechumens are, are then excused and, and taken out to receive instruction. That I don't know when that uh, practice stopped, but some time ago. So all them that are catechumens actually do remain, even though we still say that. Uh, I don't know. Perhaps it became impractical to take them out and instruct change? them. You we don't change. <laughs> what is change? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, there are other people who are liturgical nerds at, at a greater level than I who could tell you when and why that, that, uh, that was changed or altered. But um, 
we no longer actually have the catechumens leave and depart. They remain throughout the entire divine liturgy. Uh, the reason that they would be excused at that time was because they had not been fully initiated into the church. They were not baptized. They were not chrismated uh, into the church or, or confirmed, uh, to use a Western term. They were not yet initiated into the mysteries. It was still a mystery. What goes on behind uh, the, the curtain, so to speak, um, and so they were excused so that they could continue to learn and to prepare and to be made ready to, to receive that, that mystery. Um, and so it's not been excised from the liturgy uh, because it's still, it certainly bears witness to the tradition of, of liturgical development. But for some reason that I can't articulate at the moment, we do not actually have them leave. They stick around and we break we break bed together afterward, you know. So to now you should say, uh, instead of catechumens depart, you should say catechumens pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> catechumens, you can stay, but you just can't have any. <laughs> Yet. Uh, so, uh, you know, the catechumen is, uh, it's another pregnant time. It's, it's a pregnant time in the life of a Christian uh, where they are waiting to... No, we, uh, the wife is not pregnant again. My 11 are still 11. Uh, but it is a time where, where, the, where the catechumen, I have several catechumens at the moment, and they're like, gosh, I just can't wait to get baptized. I can't wait to, to be able to come to communion. And I'm like, stay hungry, my friend. Stay hungry. And let us tease you while we eat and you get to watch. <laughs> All right, so were there any questions like on this side? Because we haven't really gotten over here. Or is everybody here like far more knowledgeable than these three? Anyway, yes. Um, I work at Bon Secours, and you know it's a Catholic um, charity. Uh, we we are in Ireland and most of the United States now. Uh, it's now Bon Secours Mercy. Um, but we there there's a team of us, and we meet twice a month, and our point is interfaith and getting along with each other and praying with each other. And we have um, a lesson at the beginning of the month um, on different faiths, different denominations, and we have guest speakers come. Nick was our speaker this month, and they enjoyed it thoroughly. Most of the people in the room were Baptists. <laughs> um, but uh, we also have uh, a prayer service, and we invite different people to come and lead our prayer services. Sometimes it's a hospice minister. Sometimes it is a rabbi. So we do different things. So we're planning ahead. And in April, instead of uh, having someone come and talk about Good Friday, we're going to do Passover. And so our whole point is that we all need to get along. We all need to understand each other. And we all need to learn what the boundaries are, we need to learn what the similarities are and what the differences are, and we need to be one. Which that, that reminds me, because that's a hospital network, and, and in general, with, I've done a lot of chaplaincy, and that's something, too, where, you know, Father Nick was mentioning pre praying in Jesus' name. Um, when you're in a chaplaincy role, you're supposed to be serving all people of all faith traditions, but you will see some Christians struggle with 
praying without Jesus' name. But I've also seen some Christians because they say, well, pray in Jesus' name in scripture, they'll, they'll say the Lord's Prayer and then they'll end with in Jesus' name because they're kind of taken in a very legalistic way. And you can't really say they're wrong. I mean, Jesus says pray in his name, but at the same time, I don't think that's the general practice of the church. Uh, and, and so, so as a, someone that also serves as a chaplain volunteer with some police departments, that comes up quite frequently, uh, you know, because when you come to someone's house and you're, and you're notifying them of a death, you don't know, uh, you can't just say, well, they're in heaven now. Well, are they in heaven? Because maybe they're Buddhist or maybe they're whatever. Uh, maybe they're not baptized. Maybe they are. What's their theology regarding baptism? And so uh, I, I think to, to be flexible, to rec- and, and I look at it as being humble in a sense to, to, to say that uh, I'm going to respect the person I'm praying with enough not to force my beliefs onto them, not to project my uh, theological positions onto them and try to uh, verbalize and share something that unifies us in a way that um, they and I can relate to. But there are some Christian traditions that are going to be very strict about that saying, well, that's wrong. Uh, that's giving up my right to profess Jesus. And, and I've seen some folks from some evangelical and Baptist traditions that are refused being chaplains at hospitals and other places uh, because they feel they're not allowed to evangelize and they're not allowed to pray as they would like. At the same time, cool story is a friend of mine and friend of some of ours, uh, I won't say who he is, he's a military chaplain uh, that went through seminary locally, served as an intern at my church, and 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 he's over there uh, in overseas somewhere, and and he and he needed. He's a chaplain serving all different kinds of faith traditions, and they needed a. Um, uh, a, a medal, a holy medal of some sort from the Catholic tradition. And um, with that understanding of what chaplaincy is, with wanting to support him, the church I'm at now is providing him with those medals because we believe that we should minister to those folks as they are, meet them where they are, because down the road, maybe there's some neat conversations. Many times when I was in the hospital, people would say, especially if I was coming in with a collar, oh my gosh, you know, they'd be scared, like, you know, or, or if they hear I'm Protestant and they're Catholic, oh my gosh, you can't be talking to me. I'm, you know, you're a heretic or whatever. Um, they, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not meant to insult me. It's just that's their understanding. I'm outside of their understanding of church. They don't want to be influenced in a bad way. The, the thing is that the, um, a lot of times if the trust is built and a conversation starts and you're just patient with them and you're non-anxious presence and they recognize that you're sincerely there for them in whatever manner they, they, they need, amazing conversations about theology often follow. And I've had even folks that have said that they were atheist, facing different serious surgeries and whatever like that, discussions about death followed. Uh, respectful discussions, but but that's just that's another example of kind of worshiping together. So um, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm appreciating all the um, dialogue, and I'm taking a huge risk because I'm pushing back on everything you guys are saying. <laughs> yeah, because um, if and when I become ordained. Um, if someone were to ask me to give them communion and they were not baptized, I would not refuse that. Amen. I would not refuse that. Um, Aren't you the rebel? <laughs> yeah, maybe I am. 
Maybe I am. Um, but I just feel like, you know, if Jesus were to plop down here and he's, Jesus, he, she, whatever is right here in, in our midst is saying, you guys got it all wrong. You guys got it all wrong. You know, I didn't ask you to do this. I, I, I called the weak and I called the questioning and I called the not good enoughs. And I do not believe in my heart of hearts. I can, I can remember in, in, in 1990-something, I went to Richmond Hill because my therapist suggested I go and have a conversation with the priest. And I said to her, she took me in the gardens and she said, what is, what, what, it, what is your, your desire, my sister? And I said, I don't know what I believe in anymore. And she said, then you're closer to God than you think. <laughs> and I said, you know, what about the Buddhists? What about the Hindus? What about the Rasputarians? What, what about all the other faith traditions? And she said, I can guarantee you that if I was born and raised in Asia, I would not be Christian and God would not deny me the kingdom of heaven. So I am adamantly... And I'm sorry, but I'm passionate about this. I believe in baptism. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Trinity. But if a congregant came to me and was not baptized, I would not deny them communion. Who was your internship supervisor? I want his name. <laughs> that was me. That was me. Um, I think everyone should hear, it's a nuance, but in general, whether it's Catholic, Orthodox, as with the Bulgarian monk that I was with or whatever, there, there is wiggle room for grace, right? Uh, in general, when you hear discussions, Presbyterian, Methodist, whatever, about sharing communion, it's in the best case scenarios where they want good order that someone's going to understand. It's not just a cracker. It's not just a piece of bread that you could have with peanut butter and jelly. They would like you to understand that this is something special. And, and so that's where the pastor's role comes in to, to meet with that person, hopefully discern with them, do they really feel called to be part of that experience with us? Um, there's been times where people, you know, like I said, no one's going to come up, usually no one comes up to you and says, um, I'm new here and I'd like to receive communion. A lot of times they just come up to the rail because they see everyone else come up to the rail, right? And, I've, and, and I won't say who it was, but someone came up to the rail and they, 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 I gave them communion. They go, this was my first time. It was a high school kid. And I just said, welcome to the table, right? And then later on, I talked to him and said, well, this is what we believe in. Welcome there and da, da, da. And I, and I kind of try to catch it up. And then with the Orthodox tradition, with baptisms, folks can start doing it at, at infant age. There's different ages within different churches traditions, even within Lutheranism, different ages. Some people wait till confirmation to receive communion. But that's all a debate based on, are we really understanding what we're participating in? At some level, nobody can understand the Lord's Supper. Nobody's worthy of the Lord's Supper. And, and so I can't say I disagree with that passion you have, but also as a pastor, it's, it's, it's helpful pastorally to see where people are at and that they're participating in a way that fits their faith tradition too, because there's sometimes you might be able to say, you know, we're not exactly where you are, 
but I know a really good pastor that that might be able to answer and, and get into things with you. And so I've had folks from other traditions refer people to my church because we had that open relationship. It doesn't have to be that way. Now, uh, Father, Ad- Pastor Adam's going to come up and share a few things. <laughs> When, when an Orthodox priest is ordained to the holy priesthood, he is handed, it, it, it takes place in a part of the divine liturgy um, after the uh, holy uh, mysteries have been consecrated by the bishop. And the newly ordained priest is, after he's, he's ordained and the hands are laid on and the, the, the axios, he is worthies are, are proclaimed and he's vested in his new garments of the priesthood. Um, the bishop hands the paten, the elevated metal discos, over to the priest and he places it in his hand. And the priest takes it from the bishop and the priest says, or the bishop says to the newly ordained priest, guard this with your life until the second coming of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us the mandate the mandate, you know, to baptize all nations uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He gave us the great commission to go out and, and, and to, to evangelize. But to the priests, he asks something more. He says, this is the Holy Mysteries and you will guard this with your life until the Lord comes again. Which means that you become then at the parish level, the ultimate steward of the Holy Mysteries. And you are responsible for who receives and who doesn't, which is to say, if there was a stranger you are the one responsible for determining whether are, are they orthodox? Are they recently confessed? Who is their priest? And can it be verified that they're actually orthodox? And if you cannot do all those things, it is in some cases your job to say, please see me later. We will discuss the ability for you to receive communion. Not to exclude but because you become the steward and you become ultimately responsible as the priest for who may receive. Not because they aren't worthy, but you have to be answerable for it. Not the person who comes to communion. So your, your friend who approached the altar real, Father Lou, he wouldn't have been the one uh, responsible. But in Orthodox perspective, in Orthodox context, it is the priest who becomes not the arbiter of who is of who is worthy, but he becomes crucially aware of his role and that promise and that that commission and that that uh, yoke that he took upon himself when he accepted ordination, when he submitted to to the laying on of hands. That guard this with your life until the second coming of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. You must be at your death as a priest answerable for everything you have said and done, especially with regard to the holy mysteries. It is a grave thing to take on. It is not something that can be treated with anything but extraordinary focus and extraordinary reverence. You must be, at the end of the day, the one who is responsible for every facet of the holy mysteries. And so again, it is a statement of hope to say, if you're not prepared to receive, don't approach through 
prayer, fasting, almsgiving, <laughs> chrismation into the Orthodox Church. Uh, and also, if you are not known to the priest, or if you have not communicated with the priest prior to, which is general practice, I'm visiting your church, I'd like to receive, here's my priest, blah, blah, blah. Um, it is the priest's job to say, which is, and so what my practice is, if I see somebody has entered the church before the divine liturgy begins, I will, it is my practice to go out, even if it delays the beginning of liturgy for a few minutes, I'll go out and introduce myself, find out who they are so that I may know them. And when they approach the chalice, I don't have to say, hey, what's your name? Um, you know, <laughs> the servant of God, what's your name? Uh, I'll already have made those introductions. I'll already have made sure you are an Orthodox Christian. You are somebody who, who is admitted to the, to the Holy Mysteries. And I don't have to hold the line up when people come to communion. And I, I don't have to work out these details when I'm holding a chalice and, you know, things are a little active. I've already made that, that opportunity for them to make themselves known. And I am in that way of fulfilling that mandate from my bishop when I was ordained to, to guard these with my life. And, and literally with my life, uh, many priests have been called to guard the holy mysteries with their very lives. And so it is not something that is taken into uh, a passive reception. It is vital. And, and the word vital, if you look up the definition, has to do with life itself. So we, we, we don't exclude, but we do our due diligence in, in response to that, that mandate to, to guard these things with our life. So I get the last word? All right. Y'all ready for 20 minutes now? All right. Uh, that's right. To make a long story short. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll try and be quick. One thing, I, I just want to... Uh, I, I want to acknowledge the passion of, of your statement. And I, and I feel that and I, I understand that. And it was a perspective I once held myself. Uh, but, yes, but uh, a couple things. Um, one is that, uh, and this may be a difference between the Episcopal Church and the Lutheran Church, although, as I've said, there are many Episcopalians who are uh, taking the same position you are right now, many Episcopal clergy, uh, who are trying to fight against the rubrics and the, and the canons on this. Uh, but uh, I am not, as a priest, uh, my ministry is not my own. I, I am deputized, in a sense, by my bishop. My ministry is, is an extension of my bishop's ministry. And my bishop's ministry rests solely on that apostolic teaching and succession. So my bishop, her, her uh, ministry is, again, not based on her personal charism, on her feelings, on her cleverness or, or intellectual ability. Yes, I said her, Father Adam, deal with it. Uh, it's not based on any of that. It's based on the apostolic succession and on the apostolic teaching. And, and, this is, and so that, that holds true for me, too. It doesn't matter how I feel about something. My feelings don't trump the source of my authority when I stand as a priest, right? My, my, I like, you know, I'm arrogant. I like to think I'm a clever guy. All of my cleverness is not the source of my authority when I stand in front of a congregation as a priest. You got that right. <laughs> 
my, my authority is grounded in my bishop's authority, and my bishop's authority is grounded in the apostolic teaching, and that apostolic teaching is the word of God. So it's grounded in Scripture itself. And I'm just going to bring up two places from Scripture that I think absolutely convince me, though I could mention others, that baptism and Eucharist go together and there's no way to separate. I'm sorry, I'm going to mention three. I'm sorry, Pastor Lou. I'm going to mention three real quick. The first is, is uh, the Gospel of John. I've mentioned this before. If you read the Gospel of John, there's two major events in Jesus's life that don't happen in the Gospel of John. You never see in the Gospel of John. Uh, people don't realize this until you point it out to them. Jesus never gets baptized in the Gospel of John. Jesus never has a Last Supper in the Gospel of John. Why is that? Because the whole of the Gospel of John is an extended meditation on baptism and Eucharist. So when we're expecting Jesus to get baptized, instead what we get in the Gospel of John is John the Baptist, the one who does the baptizing, say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Lamb of God is a Eucharistic term. So we get Eucharist when we're expecting baptism. And then when we're expecting the Last Supper and Eucharist, we get Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We get water and washing, baptism, even to the point where Peter says, oh, no, no, you can't wash me. And Jesus says, if, if you are not washed, you have no part in me. And he says that at a place where expecting Last Supper, we're expecting Eucharist, and he says, if you're not washed, you have no part in me. And then, of course, Peter says, oh, well, then wash all of me. And he says, no, no, you've already been washed. Let me wash your feet. And then, of course, the final time, the most important time when Jesus is on the cross uh, and uh, the spear goes into him and we get the mixture of baptism and Eucharistic lit, uh, imagery and the blood and the water pouring forth from him. Now, that's, a, that's one, the Gospel of John. The second one that convinces me is from the gospel according to Matthew. Now, there's a shared story in Matthew and Luke uh, about a parable of Jesus where a king uh, has a great wedding feast for his son and uh, he invites all sorts of people and they say, oh no, I'm too busy, I can't show up. So then he brings in, just like you said, everybody, anybody, right? The people in the streets, the peasants, the poorest of the poor. It doesn't matter. Anybody can come in to the wedding feast. And that's absolutely true of the Eucharist. Anybody's welcome. Anybody can come in. But there's one point, in, particularly in Matthew's gospel, where there's somebody seated at the table and the, the host comes to him and says, why aren't you wearing a wedding garment? And then he is kicked out of the supper. That's from Jesus. Jesus said that. The guy who's not wearing the wedding garment, a.k.a. the baptismal gown, is kicked out of the feast. And that's from Jesus. And finally, from Paul. Paul says in that same passage that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians when he gives us the words of institution, Paul says, uh, those who do not rightly divide the body and blood of Christ, 
eat and drink damnation upon themselves or eat and drink judgment upon themselves because it's so powerful what is present in the Eucharist that it's even dangerous to eat it unworthily. And then he says, that's why some of you have gotten sick and have even died. Now, you either think Paul's just being you know, histrionic and overblown and it doesn't actually mean all those things and his words aren't actually what he's trying to say, or you accept that there is something so profoundly powerful in the Eucharist that the only way that we can safely approach it is if we have already died with Christ in baptism and therefore been given a foretaste of the everlasting life of resurrection in and through and with him by rising up from the baptismal waters. That's, I would love to say, anybody come to the Eucharist because it would make me feel a lot better than telling there's a little girl in my parish who hasn't been baptized yet because her parents are not Christian and they don't want her, but she comes with one of my parishioners and she, you know, she comes up to the altar and I bless her and I would love to be able to give her that Eucharist, that body and blood of Christ. But until she has been baptized, I'm afraid for her soul if I were to do that. Okay, I'm going to ask you this, and I know we all have to go. Because we could have a long conversation yeah. about this. Um, so what about, what are you going to say about the thief that stood next to earth, was hanging next to Jesus on the cross? Yeah, all right. So Very good, okay. So... In the early church, there were some catechumens who uh, were not, uh, they, they were catechumens, they weren't allowed to come to Eucharist, and they died as martyrs before uh, they were able to be baptized. And in that case, the church fathers said their death was a baptism in blood. And I would say the same thing about the, uh, the thief on the cross. His death was a baptism in blood. Uh, I know that that's what uh, the church fathers said, and I trust them more than I trust myself. So I'm just say, oh, I want to say a couple of things, and then we're Father Lou is gonna Pastor Lou is gonna pray us out. Um, so thank you guys all so much for coming to this. Um, I know this is my first time kind of emceeing the whole thing. Um, I'm going to try to make sure that the audio quality for this podcast is good. Uh, we should hopefully have this up uh, in January. Uh, so you can go back and listen to that and pick apart everything everybody said. <laughs> we value good conversation, whether we all agree on it or not. Um, so yeah, just by way of kind of wrapping everything up, going back to the whole thing of like Christians worshiping together as a, com as a community, um, I'm reminded of my, my family actually over this past, this past Thanksgiving. Um, I have two siblings, both younger. One currently lives in Montana. One just finished high school. Um, and Thanksgiving is a time where the three of us, we are as different, we are all as different as night and day. Um, but in our differences, we still have the same parents. We still have the same father and mother. Uh, we were both birth, we were all birthed from the same place. 
and we can all come home for a Thanksgiving meal. I like to think that that is an appropriate analogy for what I hope the church can be uh, at some point in the future. So um, with that being said, um, Pastor Luke, please pray us out. All right, first I want to thank uh, ordination candidate uh, Jane Smith, Jane Doe over here. <laughs> we appreciate her passionate sharing. Appreciate all your sharing. Uh, but I do want to, you know, Father Nick quoted the Bible a lot, especially as we got past our end time. Um, and so, so I just want to quote uh, an, another great uh, canon of sorts, Elf. Uh, he, sits, he sits on a throne of lies. Because he said multiple times he was going to be short, and he was not. All right. That was short for him. <laughs> Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together as one people, children of God, even amidst our differences, and to discuss things in a loving and kind and patient way that we can disagree with each other, yet leave as friends, that we can go from here rejoicing that you have touched our lives through the love that we have shared together, the friendship we've shared together. And we ask you, Lord, to, to just give us a, a safe and a fruitful holiday season wherever we worship, wherever we go. Uh, Lord, help us to trust that you go with us. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you guys again so much for tuning in. Uh, if you made it to the end of the podcast, kudos to you. We did go a little bit over time when we were recording this. Um, yeah, a couple of housekeeping items. First off, we are distributed. We are finally on different platforms. We are on Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public. So we are on eight different platforms now that you can listen to this podcast. We're really excited about that, and hopefully this is a little bit more convenient for everybody. Um, secondly, we have decided on a regular distribution time of the last Tuesday of every month. Tentatively, that's what we're going to do. If we get more episodes, then we may release them uh, sooner. But right now, that's what we're going to do. The last Tuesday of every month. So the next time we release an episode should be on February the 25th. And we'll be back to our regular podcast recording environment as well as uh, length of time in there. Hopefully about an hour or so. So thank you guys again so much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you then.